Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello again, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, August 18th, 2016. I apologize for the technical problems last week that caused us to cancel the show. Hopefully it won't happen again. I think we've got the issues resolved, and Blog Talk Radio has their issues resolved as well. Tonight we have Charles Marshall returning at my request to talk about his view of some of the latest decisions involving Ivanova, Kashgar, Geiske, and Shirata, if I'm saying that right. Uh, he has some interesting insights that open the door to viewing Shirata as a proactive uh, rule, a proaction uh, ruling, even though it was originally reported as a post-auction ruling. He views it as potentially, and by its own words, as a pre-auction ruling, which makes an important distinction. I think he is right. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is our new main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall is an attorney whom I previously introduced. He has offices in San Diego and the LA area and San Jose area. He has clients throughout California, and he practices in all four federal California districts. Um, And I think he still has appeals pending uh, before the Ninth Circuit and six state appellate districts um, and lawsuits moving forward in almost every county in California. He handles all aspects of foreclosure-related cases, and I would add 
that he has been an important contributor to the thinking and analysis that I've done in connection with my articles on the blog. You'll be seeing a uh, guest blog from him shortly, um, and uh, included in the cases in which he has extensive experience of foreclosure lawsuits, uh, defense lawsuits, and involving the usual suspects, Chase, Wells Fargo, City, uh, Bank of America, etc. And he handles bankruptcy and unlawful detainer matters. Charles Marshall, welcome back. Uh, great to be on again with you, Neil. So let's uh, get to the the meat of this. This evening we revisit the California. Did I say that right, Sharada? Um, I've heard it pronounced that way a, a lot of the times. Since it's not my case, I'm not exactly sure. I think Sierrata is is one way that I've heard it pronounced. But uh, e- either way, we're we're talking about the same case. That's for sure. Yeah, it looks like uh, a name of Italian descent and. I know a little Italian, and I would pronounce it Sharada, but I could be co- totally wrong. Sharada was oh, originally... It's, it's the brief New Yorker in me, that sounds, that sounds uh, right. I used to live in New York years ago, and I think Sharada makes the most sense in terms of how, how it's probably pronounced. So Sharada was originally viewed as a post-auction ruling, just like Ivanova said, you know, uh, if somebody forces the sale on property based on a void assignment, then you have a cause of action for damages for emotional distress and other damages uh, against the party who uh, used the void assignment. But even of a court... Uh, took some pains to say that this does not apply to uh, cases in which the auction sale has not occurred. Um, the, the logic in which they used, that they used to arrive at that conclusion uh, is beyond me. Uh, if it was wrong and it gives rise to an action for damages, why not stop it before it happens? But um, Sharada uh, um, was originally viewed, and I think uh, we discussed this before, as a post-auction ruling, uh, but you feel it should be viewed as a pre-auction ruling because of the wording uh, in the published ruling. Um, what are, Charles, what are the positive and negative aspects of the Sharada ruling? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental uh, positive that I think, you know, all borrowers and anybody on our side who's trying to litigate our matters should take away from the case, one of them is that I think it can be looked at as a pre-auction ruling. I'm going to get into that in some detail uh, in the upcoming blog that I'm, I'm going to be doing for your blog. Uh, in terms of the, the radio show today, I have a limited time for discussion on that. 
yes, there's there's quite a bit of wording related to that. Um, and, you know, readers of the blog, listeners of the show should look for the details on that in my upcoming blog on that matter. Uh, but the case is even more powerful than that, whether it's looked at as a pre-auction or post-auction case. And there's, there's wording that one could use to justify either reading. But whether it's looked at as a pre-auction or a post-auction case, one of the powerful results of the holding in the case is that not only does it establish that in a wrongful foreclosure scenario, the prejudice element, yes, it's met by the property going to sale, but there's a lot of language in this opinion which suggests that it's met simply by the borrower being forced to be negotiating with the wrong party. And that's something that I think we have to emphasize in our pleadings particularly in these foreclosure cases, not just in California, but in non-judicial foreclosure states around the country. Um, but one of the, uh, the other compelling uh, aspects to the holding in this case is that, and I'm going to give just a brief backup, a brief procedural history to show why the holding in this case is, is not quite apparent. The case was filed as a pre- foreclosure lawsuit and it was filed on the eve of foreclosure the, the the day of the sale was literally the next day and so much of that pleading is essentially the framework for the appeal so the appeal is responding to a lot of pleading that relates to the fact that this was this was worked up as a pre-auction complaint and yes the property went to sale literally the next day and yes, that fact was reflected in some of the later pleadings, but there's some complicated scenarios and variables related to the defendants who actually took the property to sale. It didn't go down in the way that this would conventionally happen. And again, for me to explain that during this radio show, I think is beyond the scope of this radio show, but it's yeah, absolutely but I, appropriate. It's absolutely appropriate I, I, for the coming blog. Yeah, I I get I get that. So what you're saying is that procedurally, in uh, Sharada, um, the sale particular date and the uh, uh, the date um, of the lawsuit was the day before the sale. The sale went through anyway, so the lawsuit was framed as a pre-auction uh, lawsuit, but the next day that same lawsuit was still going on, and essentially the facts had changed, and it was now post-auction. Uh, and what the... Uh, appellate court was responding to was the fact that the the case was brought as a pre-auction case rather than a post-auction case. Is that what you're saying? That's very close to what I'm saying. There's analysis in the opinion where one could read the opinion as either addressing a pre-auction or a post-auction case. Um, but I think 
there's enough in there to call it a free auction ruling, and, it, and there's language in there that absolutely should be should be used in pleading in California, because this is a published decision, and I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to have a published decision on our side. And so often, when we get a really good published decision, like we had with Klasky, at least for a period of time, uh, back in the summer of 2013, then the other side moves to depublish. And Glasky got depublished almost as quickly as it got published. We're talking a matter of weeks. Uh, Sharada was decided in mid-May. It's still on the books as a published decision. I think that's going to stick. And this is a, a, a kind of... Um, diamond in the rough type of case because I think litigants on all sides are looking at this as a post-auction case so they're not sure of its utility but as a public decision it's got a lot of strength to, to move these cases forward and it's not just in the pre-auction aspect. The other thing that's very powerful about this opinion which again I haven't seen this discussed nearly enough is that the only matter that was briefed in the appeal, and the appellate court is very clear about this, related to the prejudice element of wrongful foreclosure. And again, there was a lot of language discussing about clearly establishing that when the property goes to sale, yes, that's clear harm. But even when it doesn't go to sale, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of findings, basically, that support the proposition that even when the property has not gone to sale, there is still harm and prejudice. However, the court took that very narrow finding and narrow analysis, and they completely leapfrogged. And again, this is coming out of Riverside County, which for Californians, particularly those in Southern California, they know that Riverside County is a tough place to be if, if you've got a, a property under foreclosure. So here we are in Riverside County, tough place, even from an appellate point of view, and this appellate panel, not only did they put in a lot of language to help pre-auction borrowers, but they put in really compelling language that essentially summarily moved the entire case forward. Because even though the appeal was only briefed as to one leg of the wrongful foreclosure cause of action, you know, one of several elements, they ended up saying, look, we've established the prejudice aspect in this case, even though appellants did not brief on the issue of cancellation of instruments and quiet title, we are going to essentially summarily remand on those issues because the wrongful foreclosure element being met, those causes of action are now at play too. I mean, that's really powerful and extraordinary, and it does show that appellate panels will sometimes really come to our side. It happens so uh, infrequently that when it does happen like here, I think our side is not really quite fully registering just how important this case is. So yeah, not I see only that. does it help all, yeah, it helps all borrowers post-auction and pre-auction, admittedly especially post-auction, but also pre-auction, um, but it really helps uh, with causes of action in general because it's saying that you find even with just wrongful foreclosure that, that that cause of action should go go forward again, they're sweeping into that cancellation of instruments and quiet title. You know, it shows how important it is to 
to plead multiple causes of action in these cases. It also shows that how difficult, you know, the terrain we, we operate in, these kinds of rulings still happen, did happen. It's still a published decision, and I think the only reason it's not being talked about enough is because it's not on enough pleadings, and I hope this radio show changes that, among other things. I, well, so do I, and that's part of the reason why I do it. Um, you've made reference to the fact that the uh, post-Ivanova and post-Keshkar rulings were brutal, uh, and I would agree with that. Um, I, I think what we're seeing um, is the same thing we saw with rescission. The law of the land was uh, set by the uh, Supreme Court of the United States in rescission, and yet the trial courts and appellate courts are refusing to follow it. In Ivanova, they expressly remanded the cases back down to the lower appellate court, telling them that they should review their ruling in view of the uh, ruling in the, the California Supreme Court's decision in Ivanova, and Keshkar came back, the lower appellate court, basically resisting the higher court again, saying that we don't see how Ivanova applies to this, and Ivanova was pretty much the same thing. Uh, I assume that that's what you mean by the Ivanova and Keshkar rulings were brutal. Uh, that's exactly what I mean, and... One of the aspects on that that I wanted to touch on, which uh, is something that I think, you know, our radio listeners should be cautiously optimistic about, but it's also kind of an FYI for how to handle their own cases, you know, as they as they are, are at various levels of litigation. You know, some are moving forward, some have had, had dismissals already, some are on appeal, et cetera. Um, one of the big problems with Ivanova and Kashgar is that when these cases went back to the lower proceeding, you know, the lower court, um, the litigation was not taken up by the appellant attorney because a lot of appellant attorneys do only appellant attorney works. I mean, I work. I'm one of the few appellant attorneys I know in, in California who, who takes on a lot of these matters who has a very active litigation practice as well. And I'm not saying that it's absolutely critical that you use the same attorney for both the appeal and the lower court case, though it will help create unity and consistency in, you know, getting good results in your case. Um, however, even if you end up with two different parties, you need to make absolutely sure that when your case goes back to the lower court that it's being properly litigated, that it's, it's being litigated with a lot of intention because if it's not, Keshgar and Ivanova are both absolutely cautionary tales about what can, and in this case, will happen. I think the biggest reason these cases got wiped out so relatively soon after the favorable rulings is because they weren't litigated properly at the lower level. And when you look at the dismissal orders, the new ones, I mean, these were dismissed for reasons that, you know, even aren't fully connected to the appeal ruling. So 
one of those positives that we could take away from that is that it's not as if Kashgar and Ivanover are dead because the underlying cases are dead. The, the appellate reasoning and, and the valiance of the holdings are still out there. They have been lessened because of these results, but they have not been by any means completely extinguished. And the, the reason the cases were dismissed, as I say, I think is unfortunately inadequate lawyering is what caused that. And I want to highlight. I want to highlight what you just said because I've been saying this since I don't know forever. Um, my experience: uh, cases come to me uh, because of the work that I've done. After people have tried all other options, and um, I've jokingly referred to myself as a legal proctologist. Um, what I see in almost 100% of the cases that are given to me, not all, is I see that, uh, or that are given to me for review, I see that the cases were not aggressively litigated in the right way there is an absence of a feeling for a strategic wind blowing and an absence of thinking about the tactics uh, that will be used, an absence of thought that went into the pleadings, and in particular an absence, um, in some cases, of uh, following up on discovery. Now, discovery is a tricky item, I understand, and there are competing points of view. One that I've always held to, uh, my depositions are usually 10 or 15 minutes long. Um, I don't want to ask anything that helps the other side prepare for trial. And so discovery should be just that. It should be an effort to discover something that you don't know or can't prove without asking the question uh, uh, of the other side in order to set them up. And what you're saying here in both Ivanova and Keshkar is that the, the cases stumbled into... Uh, good rulings at first and then eventually fell um, in part because of the way that they that the lawsuits uh, reminding our listeners that we're talking about a non-judicial state in which the so-called lender can use self-help um, and just set the property for sale after proper notice uh, so it's up to the uh, homeowner to file suit against the so-called lender uh, to stop the sale. So, in uh, and, and that puts a greater burden on uh, the homeowner, and I'm not sure that's been addressed properly in the courts. But in um, in these cases, even over in Keshkar and so many others. Uh, there should be 
uh, more uniform pleading on our side of the fence, and I've been trying to bring that together. I'm working on a, a project now that will enable lawyers to at least come to a site where they can compare their pleadings to uh, template pleadings that we've created for like circumstances or even submit it to us for, for uh, drafting. Um, the advantage that the banks have is that in thousands and thousands of courtrooms, every business day, the banks go into court through their attorneys and are arguing and pleading and writing the same points because they do have a relationship with each other and some form of cooperation, uh, including uh, uh, weekly phone calls and monthly uh, phone conferences, etc. So I took this moment, Charles, to just underscore the importance of what, like you and I are doing now, uh, that this should spread across the country where we start sharing uh, our pleadings and discovery and uh, proposed orders uh, with each other. And on the issue of proposed orders, by the way, um, in, in most jurisdictions you'll see the bank lawyers always come in with a proposed order, whether they get it signed or not, but they like to hand it to the judge because it basically is a separate argument about what they think should happen. It's a good idea for uh, uh, homeowners to start doing the same thing. I've come to that conclusion uh, uh, somewhat recently, but it certainly seems to uh, hold. What do you think of that? Oh, I agree with you 100% on that. I mean, there's an expectation with an attorney who's representing a specific borrower just like the institutional defendants on the other side, the judge expects us to present proposed orders of litigants, pro se litigants, pro per litigants. You know, again, pro per is in state cases, pro se is in federal. There's no expectation that they present orders. But if they don't present orders, then they allow either the judge or even the opposition in some cases to frame what the what the literal uh, content of the order is going to look like. And so, you know, for those who are pro per or pro se, it's absolutely critical to be getting some kind of, of professional advice about pleadings, about how you're presenting your case, because even something like just having a proposed order can make a big difference. I mean, one, it will literally frame what's going to happen if you do prevail at a specific hearing. Two, having it makes you look more professional. And, and all these kinds of, you know, you could almost call them intangibles, but you add them up, there, there's a tangible result at the end of it. I mean, I can never emphasize enough what a, an institutional advantage the institutional defendants have in these cases in a non-judicial foreclosure states like California. It's just a huge advantage, but it's not an insurmountable advantage. I mean, Ivanova, Kashgar, uh, 
you know, my earlier case, Kaseki, which, by the way, is uh, is moving forward now. Um, it's it's going back into full litigation, and uh, I'm looking for good results on that. And, you know, even with that particular case, you know, the case management statements are another matter. I mean, this comes uh, into play more in federal court than state court, but something even is, is seemingly humble as a case management statement, if you let the opposition frame that, it's fine actually for them to frame it initially, but if you just let that stick and you don't change it and you don't counter what's in there, they always spin things to their advantage. And it's just relentless. And our side has to be as intentional, has to be as diligent in defending our rights. And that's what I always emphasize in my cases, but I I also want to bring that whole ethos to everybody on our side, and I fully support and, and will coordinate with Neil to bring, you know, the the better approaches to doing the pleadings and to doing strategic litigating. That's absolutely critical to move these cases forward and to ultimately get good settlements. Good. Well, I, I I think we're coming a long way uh, in that direction. I think a lot of people are starting to realize that uh, uh, that what I referred to back uh, when I started the blog ten years ago, and what I've uh, referred to long before that as taking control of the narrative. Every, every lawyer who's in court should be looking to take control of the narrative. And if you sit back and let the other side talk, they've taken control of the narrative and you're on your way down already. So uh, um, sometimes there's nothing you can do. The judge uh, will tell you to shut up. But more often than not, um, uh, while I've been in court waiting for my case to come up and so forth, it's quite obvious that the bank lawyer almost always takes control of the narrative, and having done so, he's guiding the decision of the court. So let's move on a little bit and to the Udai holding. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, I think it might be, yeah, I think it's either Udai or Yehudai. Um, Yehudai. And okay. with that case, which, by the way, I mean, the other side is very much enthralled with that case. They're already introducing it into their pleadings. They're int- introducing it into their appeals. They're, they're, okay, this is not really an aside. It's actually in the middle of what you're talking about with Yehudai. This is just another example of how opportunistic and smart the institutional defendants are, and again, we have to we have to get smart too, and I think we can mirror certain other practices and put them in place. Whether you're in an appeal, whether you're in a regular litigation environment and your lawsuit is still moving forward, letter briefs are a compelling way to get new case law in front of judges. And the, the institutional defendants in California never shy away from, from doing these. And they're not an ex parte uh, communication because all you have to do is CC the other side 
and then you send a brief. It's on, if it's on appeal, you send it to the clerk of the court or possibly the appellate panel. Uh, if, it's, if your case is moving forward in the, in the trial court, then you simply send it to the judge, possibly the clerk of the judge. And as long as you see the other side, it's not an ex parte communication. And what you say is, gee, do you know about this case? And do you know what the implications of this case are? And I see this all the time from the other side. And I used to get aggravated by it because I knew they were opportunistically, meaning the institutional defendants, taking advantage of every even modest development that, that happened for their benefit. But getting angry does not do anyone any good. It doesn't do me any good. It doesn't do my clients any good. So I've gotten smarter. I've started to do this myself, and it's effective. You get letter briefs and you get invitations to do a letter brief in front of, uh, you know, the judges at the lower courts and the appellate panels and the upper, you know, the, the appellate courts. And this is a really good way of pushing our positions forward. So Yehuda is already being presented in a lot of cases. In California, even though it just came out, I mean, literally, I believe, on July 29th. So we're talking, you know practically less, less than three weeks ago, and it's probably already in hundreds of briefs and hundreds of uh, demurs and responses from the institutional defendants here in California. And Yehuda, you know, we need to do, also need to do positioning that's, again, kind of in alignment with what the institutional defendants do. And what do I mean by that? They keep making this sound like this is some world consequential decision that kind of ends the dispute, so to speak. Um, and in reality, it's on one particular type of securitized trust issue. You know, I'm not saying that this is, is it is a decision that hurts our side. It is a decision that we have to account for. Uh, but if you look at the actual holding, what it says is where there's a securitized trust, you know, which is usually going to be a New York trust, and there's specific, you know, you could actually argue that the holding only applies to New York trust. And where there's a, a claim of a late assignment, in that particular scenario, then under Yehudai, Glasky's out the window, and th those types of assignments will be considered voidable, not void. And for those who've been listening to this show for some time, even for some of those newer to this show, you're going to know that the, the distinction between void and voidable is absolutely critical in these cases. If it's merely voidable, we're dead in the water. If we can allege void and that sticks with the court, then the case will move forward. Um, That's so, right. Neil, maybe maybe the, you could speak to you could speak to the bowling decision and how that shows that the Yehudai decision was wrongly decided. Well, yes, and I think that. This goes back to what I, again, what I said 10 years ago, that merely alleging that the assignment is late is a very weak argument. Um, extensions and ratification and all that stuff comes into play, and uh, it's not a definite st statement. But if you say it was a late assignment and that it's a void assignment and that the assignee never purchased the loan or the debt, 
And so this is a fraudulent assignment. Now you've got something. But lawyers have shied away from saying that because it's counterintuitive to believe that they would have gone through all these chains of assignments and and uh, powers of attorney and so forth unless the trusts actually had been funded, took their money, and bought these loans. But the truth is, none of these trusts, as far as I can determine, were ever funded. The money that they were supposed to have received was never received by the trust, and therefore the trust and the trustee for the trust could never have purchased any loans because it was impossible to make the purchase without having money. And that counterintuitive idea has been resisted not only by judges, but by most lawyers and even borrowers. They can't quite believe that that's the case. They can't quite believe that the greatest economic crime in history actually is that blatant. But I'm saying, in my opinion, that it is that blatant. I'm saying that none of the trusts were ever active. None of the trusts ever had a bank account. None of the trusts ever had any assets. And therefore, the investors are holding worthless paper in the mortgage bonds, which nobody wants to admit because now we have a whole spider web of securities that emanate derivatively from the presumption that those mortgage bonds do have value because the trust did buy the loans, but they didn't. And the, the legal implications of that are simply that there could not ever have been a chain of sales of the loan, and therefore the assignments were obviously void. The money that went to the closing table came directly from the investors through the investment bank, through conduits, and was presumed to be a loan from the originator when, in, in terms of my survey work, it appears that 95% of the time, the named lender on the note and mortgage never made the loan, and that not even the party in back of them was, uh, was a lender. They also were a conduit. So um, this, this uh, I guess what I'm leading up to here, Charles, is that People keep looking for a magic bullet to make this simple. The banks intentionally made this convoluted and complex. You can't make it simple as a borrower and just walk out uh, a free man um, or woman. This, this effort that we're all making is going to still take years and in many cases, as Charles can tell you and I can tell you, we win. But in many cases, we don't. And it's because of the court's resistance to 
the uh, the idea that the borrower should win, but it's also because the cases have not been pled right or argued right. Any comment to that, Charles? Uh, I think you're absolutely right, and the term of art for the the uh, complexity, uh, you know, kind of tangle that you're talking about is contrived complexity. I mean, that's exactly what's going on. The the entire mortgage fiasco was by design. Uh, it started with the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act back in the late 90s, and the whole program to make these securitized instruments completely opaque and, and almost inscrutable to interpret uh, comes out of the theory of contrived complexity. And unfortunately, you know, the the institutional lenders and servicers, you know, ultimately the lenders and the funders, you know, a huge percentage of which, of course, came out of New York, came out of Wall Street. Uh, it, you know, this all has created the massive uh, financial tsunami that we've been dealing with and are still dealing, dealing with now. And the way I see it is that this is absolutely, you know, a war and, and a series of battles that, that, you know, does continue. I mean, it would be great if there was a magic bullet. It would be great if there was one case that would be so definitive that we could just go into court, you know, and, and plead summary judgment and essentially end the case in our favor the way that, the institutional defendants so often are able to kill cases in California. But that's one thing I, I want to say for our side again. I think that borrowers really need to be hardened that in non-judicial foreclosure states, because of the Ivanova cases and, and those types of cases, a lot of these cases are getting past demur. A lot of these cases are getting past motion to dismiss. So the next place where borrowers are getting into trouble typically is with discovery. Because one thing you can be sure of is that the other side is always going to fight these cases. And it just takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of uh, focus from our side. But I know a lot of borrowers who are ready and willing and do bring that. I bring that to my cases. And it's one of our, our goals, Neil and mine, that we, we just infuse that whole ethos into, you know, into everything that our side does. So we will, we will win more often and we will get uh, better settlements and, and get, get over on the other side rather than being constantly on the defensive. Well stated. I wanted to ask you some questions about Geiske, but uh, we're running out of time here. I've only got 56 seconds left. I want to uh, uh, thank you, uh, Charles Marshall, for uh, uh, giving us your insight again. Uh, Charles can be reached at 619-807-2628. And, of course, uh, uh, you can reach us at our main number of 202-838-6344. So... Um, Look for the article coming up in the next few days uh, from Charles that will appear on my blog, uh, Living Lies. 
that will give some more insight into um, uh, several of the things that we managed to touch on but didn't get as deep as we would like. These are not seminars. So thank you, everybody, for joining us, and hopefully next week we'll be back. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.